0: Welcome to episode 422 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with Reed Ramsey and Andrew Swafford. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about some movies that we saw at TIFF 2022, part one. And in part two, we're going to be uh, continuing our concert movie series with 1984's Stop Making Sense. Uh, That's right. Such a great episode. Good episode. So much good content. We're not going to dilly-dally. We're just going to go ahead and jump, because we got a bunch of TIFF movies to get to. Um, we're going to kick off with one. I think, Andrew, this was our... Well, like, so We'll can go. we we'll start with the new release that people can actually see, actually. This is our first movie that we saw, and the one that people can actually see. Yeah, let's do that. Which is uh, Moon Age Daydream. Uh, it is the uh, Brett Morgan-directed documentary about David Bowie. Uh, like I said, it, it played at TIFF, but it is in theaters now, so you can check it out. Um, and uh, I don't know. we Actually, we also have the review from TIFF from Andrew and I posted on com. So so if you would like to read that, but um, if you read that, I think you can see that, you know, two thumbs up from the two of us, because uh, Moon Age Daydream is a hell of a time.
1: It is one of the best movies you saw at the festival, I think. Um, and. I mean, I don't know. Did you see the trailer for this before you watched the movie?
0: I think once in, like, a theater.
1: So at Central Cinema, they, they play it all the time. I'm very glad that they're showing it, like, round the clock right now. Um, but when I saw the trailer, I was hoping that it would be kind of like a non-narrative avant-garde film, like, very unconventional documentary, just kind of, like, making this musical or this, like, visual equivalent of, like, David Bowie's whole vibe in a movie Um, But I didn't think they would actually be brave enough to make a movie that like, I don't know if I want to say it's inaccessible um, because I think that it is like playing wide. It's like playing an IMAX screens. People are going to like it if they like David Bowie. But like it is nothing about this movie is on paper. What is like people are looking for in a Hollywood blockbuster about David Bowie, right? I mean, it's not a blockbuster, but you know what I mean?
0: I I described it to people who asked that it's either it's going to play well for you if you either really, you know, like David Bowie and are into him or are very interested in him. If you're going in going, I'm not totally sure about David Bowie, but I'm going to give him a try. I don't feel like this is the movie for you.
1: (laughs) For sure. But if you just like the vibe of David Bowie, which I do, I don't really listen to his music all that much, but I really respect the vibe from afar. This movie is like that vibe bottled into, like, this avant-garde film um, that is cobbling together um, all these different, like, um, unseen concert, all this unseen concert footage and, like, really interesting interview clips um, to, like, create this really non-linear, overwhelming sensory experience um, that, like, I've just not seen another music documentary like this. Um, Like, it is not a concert film. It's not like a... Uh, talking head uh, no pun intended like documentary it is something that is more akin to like actual music um, it's really really cool
0: yeah, so it's a, it's a lot of, you know, it weaves his music, um, a lot of like the Ziggy Stardust album and things like that into it. But it also is whenever he's talking, it's it's interview clips or behind the scene clips. It's not like a it's like it's not like a single narrative. There's a couple like portions where he's talking about one specific subject, like he's talking about the Ziggy Stardust character. Or he's talking about his family or he's talking about, you know. Uh, things like that, but it's not like there's no... It's not like... There's not part one, you know, yeah, act one, act two, act three. It's more just a stream of consciousness for two hours.
1: Right, you're never dropped into a scene of him having an interview for a long time. The interview audio is, like, laid over the movie as this, like, disembodied voice for a lot of it. Um, And it's like you're kind of hearing David Bowie's, like, this imagined version of David Bowie's, like, inner monologue throughout his life um really really interesting and like just th- thrilling and exciting to watch too um like just super good filmmaking
0: yeah the first um the first like 10 15 minutes is just like this full-on montage thing that is on like like you watch the first 15 minutes and you're like this is the best movie ever <laughs>
1: yeah there, there was a moment where i was like this is definitely the best movie i'm seeing i'm seeing it the best one it was the first movie we saw at the yeah festival. like the first 15 minutes um, are
0: incredible because it's just like this just music montage clips all like married together in this like really kinetic way and you're just like this is the greatest thing of all time <laughs> um but yeah no i mean if you if you if it's in you you know, it's playing wide if you can see it on imax that sounds awesome i think yeah i kind of want to
1: see it again on imax if i can
0: yeah um but no i recommend on moon age daydream but i mean i think it's i think it's a lot of fun um and then ironically enough our next movie is the second movie that we watched um and that is the latest from park chan wook uh for those who are familiar with old boy uh we've talked extensively on this podcast about the handmaiden um, decision to leave is his newest movie. Uh, it's, a uh, it's a police procedural. It's one of my, it's, it's, it's my favorite type of police procedural where the cops are dummies. Um, <laughs> just like, just like, it's like true. just, just yeah. dummy guys. And you're like, yeah, those are fun. Um, yeah. and, and pretty much the gist of it is this detective is investigating, this death of this man uh, They initially think it's a suicide But then they bring in his wife For questioning And she's a little suspicious But also he's in, he falls in love with her And so then it's just kind of this Psychosexual relationship Between the two of them As he's investigating this murder And is also trying to like Just be in love with this woman um, mm-hmm. I I, I you know i would have to kind of look at like park chan wook's career i don't think it's like a career highlight maybe um you know it's not i don't like it as much as like the handmaiden or or something like that yeah but also
1: i don't know if he will ever top the handmaiden but
0: this one is one like this one was a reminder of like why he's such a fun fucking filmmaker because his movies are just so fun like it's like this one the, the 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 camera work the, you know, it's it's the camera is constantly like creating jokes. The editing is creating jokes. Like you just have these two cops being the like the partner for the detective is just a like grade A dummy, and he's so entertaining. <laughs> um, and it's
1: I was not expecting
0: this movie to be as funny. Super as funny movie. Um, but no, yeah. i like, over like so, like like I said, I mean, it's I don't think it's one of his great his you know best movies ever, but. It's really, really good, and it's really, really fun. And, and the the main actors, the, the detective and the woman who uh, he falls in love with, both fantastic. I need to what's her? Let me look up her name. She's the, I, I know her as the woman who falls in love with Chris Hemsworth in Black Hat, which is Black Hat fans. That's enough. Uh, Tang Wei, <laughs> uh, Tang Wei, and she's uh she's super good. Like she's she's fantastic. Um, but uh, Andrew, what did you think of Decision to Leave?
1: Oh, I liked it a lot. It, uh, as you said, it's just super funny. It's super fun. Um, I was, I did go in with really high expectations because of The Handmaiden and because it's been such a long time since he's made The Handmaiden. Um, and that felt like a tonal shift or like a shift in his style to me from what I had seen before. And I was ready to see like the next period of like mature Park Chan-wook, you know, uh, but... It is not exactly that it is a little trashy it is a little uh airport novel-y um but like in a really fun way like he, he just he takes that material and and makes it makes you completely invested in it even though like the that is like kind of ridden with cliches and tropes and stuff like that but it is still like it's surprising like he's still very good at creating these twists um, it, the way that it twists is different than the Handmaiden. and it's like you're not constantly having the rug pulled out from under. You, you kind of see where the thing is going, but it definitely unfolds like a number of times that you're not necessarily expecting. Um, I, it's very hard to explain how the mystery works without talking about the mystery. Um, but I,
0: I really like it. It's fun. It, it, it's it reminds me a lot – and I think this is kind of – he, he does this a lot. It reminds me of a lot of like a Hitchcock movie where it is this very – it's like a – you know, it's a B or C – like you describe airport novel plot. Like it's really not that – the plot itself is really not that um, intuitive. But the way he directs it is so goddamn fun and like so like brimming – with just filmmaking skill, that like it, it, makes this plot, you know, the plot that's just kind of whatever into like because it's it's more about just like the tension between these lead characters. It's more about like the detective and just like the the weird stuff he's getting into. Like he he like is uh he like has insomnia and is just like constantly up like watching people. Um, it's just like a strange little fun pulpy movie um, that reminds me of like Park Chan-wook's a fucking awesome filmmaker.
1: It's also really nice to look at too, like these settings that they create and the costumes and everything. Um just comes together super well. Yeah.
0: Um yeah. but I believe I, I forgot I saw was movie direct- distributing it some I forgot some they I think were had-
1: attached to it in like the like studio bumpers, but surely they didn't They're not distributing it.
2: Surely, it's going to get something bigger than that, like theatrical. Right. I I feel like
1: A twenty four Neon has to get this movie. It seems Um, like a
0: neon movie. Um, Yeah, but yeah, I would I would assume it'll probably come out later this year or early next year. Um, super fun though, great great one. Um, this one is one that uh, speaking of mystery, it's coming out later this year, (laughs) and we're and we're sworn to not spoil anything. Or I think. Like like Netflix is gonna come and like slice our heads off. So was
2: yeah. <laughs> um, the segue planned out?
0: What's that?
1: The knives are gonna yeah. be out for us if we if we reveal too many details about this movie.
0: So we caught uh, Andrew and I caught the sequel to Knives Out, uh, which is called Glass Onion. Great title, it's, I think. A Knives Out mystery. Well, if you cut out... Glass Onion itself is great, but if you cut out... A Knives Out Mystery... We're, we're pretending A Knives Out Mystery is not part of the title. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Glass Onion... I won't... Because I won't, like, I, 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 we're not supposed to spoil anything. We're supposed to... It's just something about the sanctity of movies. Um, <laughs> but the plot is... The only re- returning character is uh, Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc, um, the, the detective. Um, but this one, it follows... Um, Edward Norton, who is like this kind of tech billionaire, uh, he's Elon, Elon Musk. Elon Musk figure, who invites a number of his friends, who are played by uh, Jen, uh, Janelle Monae. <laughs> Joe Rogan. Man, <laughs> Dave Joe,
1: Bautista plays Joe Rogan.
0: <laughs> yeah, Dave. <clears throat> Dave Bautista, uh, Catherine Hahn, Kate Hudson. Um. All, all to this island to like have to do a murder mystery, but also like kind of have this like friends weekend thing. Um, and and to, um, it was, inter- you know, I really enjoyed Knives Out. I thought it's uh, just a really fun popcorn movie. Um, just like just a great I'm kind of pissed that Netflix is distributing this because it's honestly a movie that needs to be seen like in a movie theater with people around. This should play wide. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm hoping that they do give it a run. Um, have they done that? Have Netflix put any of their movies out in theaters? Not really. I don't think they have. They really should do it with this though, because on like, like they that's should. why knives out was so popular. Cause people would go see it in theaters. Um,
1: and it's coming out on Christmas too. Like people were going to want to go with their families to see it. Exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't, I, I, have to, I'll have to watch it again. I don't know if I like this one more, or the first one more. Um, I, I, def- I definitely like this one more. Okay. Um, but, uh, this one took for me it took me a little while it kind of it takes a while to get set up and then it and then it gets to the point where it turns and when it turns it's great
1: i mean i liked the setup too i thought that all those scenes were like funny and interesting and unique um but yeah like i i liked knives out the first one enough and then saw it again and and kind of realized that it was you know even better than i'd given credit for back then um and this, like, I went in with kind of low expectations because it's just kind of a sequel to a popular movie and Netflix has it and, you know, they might be ringing dry this thing that doesn't have legs. Um, but, no, I actually would like more Knives Out movies. I would like this to be a franchise that goes for a long time. Um, Ryan Johnson is, like, a filmmaker. He knows what he is doing. Um, he's a really funny scriptwriter too. And, like can twist a mystery um i like this mystery in this movie is like four mysteries in like a russian nesting doll structure and like they're all equally like surprising and um just like add fresh layers to the movie um and, like, it's shot really well, too. Like, the, the cast is, like, crazy big, and everybody's great. Um, Janelle Monae is awesome, and I, I get the feeling that they're kind of setting her up to be the protagonist of the next one. I hope that's not too much of a spoiler for Netflix, um, but I hope that is true. I would love to see Janelle Monae
0: lead a, a Knives Out mystery. Um, she's very, like, loose in this movie. You know, I feel like a lot of the other roles she's done... Um... You know whether it's, but it's, it's always kind of like hidden figures or something where it's like Janelle Monet is in this. It's movie. like a big prestige this thing. One, yeah, yeah, and this one, and this one, it's just like she, it's a very loose character. Like she, like you can tell she's just kind of like. Ryan Johnson has written a really fun character, and she's able to like do. Stuff I think he
1: it. also is aware of that like star persona that she already has developed because the movie kind of starts that way like she i was immediately a little underwhelmed by how much nominee we were getting because she was kind of the steely distant uh character but like there are twists and turns where there's more to her than that right um yeah just super fun super good i feel like we're maybe a, a broken record on just like how good and fun and enjoyable everything is so far but like Uh, we saw a great crop of movies movies. (laughs) it really did
0: there's just no bad (laughs) movies um i don't know what to tell you um real quickly before we finally let uh reed speak um uh we i think all three of us saw wendell and wild and we would have talked about it here but we're going to actually talk about it next month when it comes out for our horror for kids series um but before we we move on to another movie um you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. You know, we'll do the old Ebert and uh, Ebert and, and, and Siskel, like thumbs up or thumbs down. I mean, what did you all feel about Wendell and Wilde? I'm, I'm too thumbs up.
2: Yeah, I was too, too big thumbs up as well. I thought it was so fun. Uh, very endearing, heartwarming. That's all I'll give it. I th- think I
1: am tragically a thumbs down on Wendell and Wilde. Um, I really wish we could talk about it now, but I also think it would be better... To watch it to talk about it when it comes out people have seen it and I would like to watch it again uh, because one of the reasons I, I struggle with it because it's a very complicated movie um, I was not expecting it going to be on. quite as complicated as it is and I my first blush is that that's a detriment but I might end up enjoying it after I kind of know what it's doing um, I don't know <laughs>
0: Um, and then and for those who are on unaw- a Wendell and Wild, it's the new um, stop motion animated film from Henry Selick, who's known for Coraline and Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, and it stars Kean and Peele. And so that's, you know. We,
1: we did an episode on Coraline where me and Zach talked about that movie a lot. So so we're going to talk about
0: that. We'll talk about Wendell and Wilde yeah. uh, next month extensively, but we're going to let Reed talk. So um, Reed, tell us, tell us about. How you got sick?
2: Oh, okay, sick. Um, Sick, this is the new horror movie from Kevin Williamson, or writer Kevin Williamson, um, as well as co-screenwriter. Let me make sure I get the name correct. uh, Caitlin Crabb. And it's directed by John Himes of Universal Soldier and Alone acclaim. And Kevin Williamson, if you're not familiar, is the screenwriter from Scream. Uh, and I know what, and I, I think I know what you did last summer. Now I'm questioning that. Uh, Yeah, no, I know what you did last summer. Yeah, he did both those. Are those movies good? Uh, personally, I love both of them. Okay. Oh, the, the series I know what you did last summer? Yes. Uh, the first one's really great. The second one, uh, was fine. I haven't watched the third one. Okay. It's going on the October rotation. It's definitely worth it. Especially if you just like generally like slashers, you'll like it. Yeah. Because um, it's like a kind of a breezy movie. Uh, but Sick is their new slasher, directed by John Himes, like I said. Um, and the premise is basically we are transported back to March 2020, March 2020, at the start of the pandemic. And it is just like all COVID. You could tell they wrote this thing like in March and April. And this movie is just layered with COVID jokes that at least the midnight screening I was at were eating up and they were really annoying me Like the crowd. I mean we literally get at least two maybe three jokes of Characters wiping down their groceries after bringing them inside it happens multiple times and the audience but was that even a joke in March? like what would they be doing that sincerely Well, I think people were doing that at the start of the pandemic. Maybe not, like, the very beginning, but, yeah, it wasn't, like, yeah, it wasn't a joke. Um, But people were cracking up in the theater, and I was just like, this is annoying. Like, maybe in, like, a few years, if you want to include something like that as, like, a sign of what happened, sure. But, like, the way it was played in the movie is super jokey, and it's just not, like, there's just a lot of things you're supposed to recognize of, like, oh, yeah, I also went through that during COVID. So, therefore, it's funny in this slasher comedy. Um did you see uh host the the one that like came this, out like the zoom call
1: unfriended covid movie okay I'm curious like how this compares to that uh, because that was like made and finished in like the early days of
2: COVID. Uh, but they don't really make light of it. Um yeah. This one I mean you know I mean even ultimately this movie may be kind of making light of covid like the whole plot is entrenched in uh like disease like it's called sick obviously but yeah. it's like entrenched in like uh covid and everything like that um but basically the, the main plot is these two girls are on break from college at the start of the pandemic and they're like oh we don't have to finish the semester let's go live at my parents lake house so it's kind of like a like uh home invasion a little bit story where it's like people living in like a remote house and you just know they're going to get like stalked and attacked. Um, But basically that's the setup. And personally, I found a lot of the COVID related stuff annoying. Like if they just laid off the, the, the repetition of the jokes, it probably would have been more engaging, but the overall like slasher storyline, the way it all works is pretty, is pretty like fun. I won't call it like surprising or overly interesting, but it is like pretty fun and worth watching for that reason. The other weird thing, and I haven't seen many of Haim's films, but the camera work's just like insane. Like it's all Really? Like a lot of the action is shaky handheld that's super distracting. Um like insane, uh, man. Yeah, sorry. Should have <laughs> clarified. <laughs> it's, <Sorry>. it's insane. It's <laughs> insane. But uh, it's just, like, lots of shaky, uh, just, like, hard to realize what's happening kind of action shot in the dark. And it's just, like, I mean, some parts are fine. The performances by the two leads are really solid and keep it moving. But overall, like, I don't... Like, I think I gave it, like, three stars. Like, very lightest of recommends. Um, If you already like slashers and you're just, like, wanting a kind of quick movie to watch this is it's fine
1: also what a commitment um the midnight movie at tiff is like a big ask because you gotta walk go go through public transit after to get back to your airbnb and you gotta wake up super early to see something else the next day and you're super exhausted like that sucks that it was not fun
0: <laughs> well re decided to add a different flex it just goes straight to the airport afterwards so
2: Oh, nice! I haven't even talked to you all about that. That was a Wait, you went to the airport in the middle of the night after your midnight movie? Yeah, because my flight was at like seven a.m. So okay. the other option was I mean, to that's go. That's probably what I would have done too. But geez. Yeah, the other option would be to go all the way back to the Airbnb, like get maybe yeah. an hour and a half, two hours of sleep, and then go to the airport. My my fatal flaw was one: the train was not running uh, no. at that time of the night to the airport, <laughs> so I had to take a cab. Uh, and then the other thing was like the airport doesn't, they they didn't like actually open to where you could like go sit by the gate, which is what I wanted to have. Oh fuck!
1: <laughs> you were stuck before security.
2: It was a long night. I don't. I did not. I did not
1: sleep much. Damn, Reed having a real the terminal experience. He was over there like. <laughs>
2: Putting the carts,
0: yeah, get, get, put in the carts away yeah get putting the carts away to get working and stuff like it was
2: it was a real bizarre one i was uh, i felt like i was in like a waking nightmare a bit a little like after hours shit Jeez. um but but what was next <laughs> was i talk about oh we're
0: gonna t- we're gonna, t- we're, gonna t- we're gonna talk about killing sex the, the end of it no more
1: I was getting in my head, getting this title mixed up with the next movie, which says "I like movies," and my head was, "I know, I, I
2: like sex." Yeah. The end
0: of movies, <laughs> I like sex.
2: Uh, but yeah, Andrew and I saw this one. Uh, this one's really good. I'll let you start, Andrew. But... Sure. Um, so this is a sex comedy
1: uh, about a married couple who's been married a very long time and they are excellent co-parents the first opening montage is just showing them like getting their kids up and like packed for summer camp and on the school bus and waving them goodbye and crying and like they're just so attached to their kids that you get the feeling that their kids have become their entire life, right? And as soon as they have a week away from their kids, um, the question becomes, like, what do we do with ourselves? And they genuinely don't have an answer. So they decide, we haven't had sex in a long time. Let's have sex. That would be fun. And then they do not have fun, and they don't understand why they are no longer good at having sex with one another. Um, And so the rest of the movie is kind of them um, exploring what it would look like to become better at sex or to like reignite the spark or just explore things sexually they've never explored before figure things out about their own sexual identities that kind of thing um and it is very funny and and really well made um I thought that there was plenty of great visual comedy, too. I think that this is the kind of a kind of premise that um, would make kind of a lazily shot Netflix TV show or something. But no, it's it's a solid movie that I'm really sad is probably not going to get big distribution. Um, there's one kind of star in it. And she's a character in Shit's Creek. Um so it would be cool if like you know she was a bankable enough name for this to to like have a lot of exposure because I think people would like it if they saw it but I'm kind of worried this is going to be one of those tip movies that I enjoy and never see again because it just disappears. Um what did you think Reed?
2: Yeah no I have the I have the same fears in that sense but I did I really enjoyed this one. Uh like you said it's really funny. I I liked the like structure like the way it's written it has like a basically day by day the like seven days the kids are gone that they have to like figure their shit out and it just and it kind of escalates every day yeah Yeah, you know something's gonna happen each day it's gonna be like like they're gonna try something uh different like whether it's going to like a sex club or like uh inviting someone to be in for like a throuple situation (laughs)
1: The stunt casting that is dropped all of a sudden in the sex club—I will not spoil it in case people get a chance to see this movie—but oh my god, uh, my audience lost their shit when that person was on on screen. Uh, yeah, but
2: yeah. I mean, it's just like a really a really sturdy comedy. Like uh, Emily Hampshire is the one from Schitt's Creek, and I thought she was really funny. But also the her husband, uh, played by. Jonas Chernick I thought like he just had a really really good comic timing especially for like yeah, like a kind of Funny but depressed dad it seems
1: yeah, he's kind of like doing the neurotic Woody Allen thing a little bit um, But in a more wholesome less, you know, uh, icky way um, and I guess like if I have one criticism of the movie um, it is that like it seems to be escalating to a certain point. Like it, it seems to be like about to sort of reorient this couple's relationship in a way that would be really fundamental and meaningful. And it doesn't. Um, and I kind of think that it's drawing a line with like nine dots and asking you to fill in the 10th one. But I kind of wish the movie just had the balls to draw the 10th one. Um, and that is extremely vague and i i know that this that will not make sense to people who probably will never get a chance to see this movie um but it is a th- again a thing that could play well if it was put in front of people it reminds me of like a, a game night or something like that
2: i mean i think like to speak to what you're saying i um i think a lot of it feels like it's swinging for the fences in terms of like uh Boundaries pushed and stuff like that. And then in the end, yeah, the ideas going on, um in the comedy as well, but then in the end it is like it wants to resolve as a typical romantic comedy. And like I even told Andrew after the screening, I was like, Man, towards the end I'm like, there's no way they can wrap this up well. Yeah. And that's kinda where I landed. Like that's And so the way they do is just kind of like to hand wave it away. Yeah, it was good. I, I would recommend, although it'll probably not be available.
0: The End of Sex. Good. Um, Speaking of movies that probably won't get American distribution but are good, let's talk about I Like Movies.
1: Yeah, this movie's real good. It's great. Uh, I hope it's I- a Canadian movie, so like hopefully it will at least get distribution there. Um, oh, the yeah. Canadian crowd was enjoying a lot of the in-jokes
0: yeah, I, and this would be one we talked about it after we saw it, but like this would be good, you know, the drop onto a like Netflix or Hulu or something like that. I think it would play well. Um, I think it could be a good
1: A twenty four
0: movie. Yeah, I think the A twenty four teens would eat this movie up. Oh, absolutely. So um, yeah, I like movies. It's directed by Chandler Levac, uh, who is from from Toronto. So it was yeah, they had a whole like it was a real hometown kid thing going on um but uh this the movie follows this just horribly horribly socially inept seventeen year old <laughs> child um uh, named Lawrence who uh when you meet Lawrence he and his best friend who what, what was his best friend's name is it like, matt forget. his best friend matt, matt. Um, they they kind of are a little bit of social outliers uh, they uh, <laughs> you meet them because they do this uh, I think it's for a class project this video about how they hang out uh, The they're the loners club and they like spend Saturday night watching Saturday Night Live um, but Matt you can tell is kind of pulling away and kind of wants to like have other friends and, and Lawrence pretty much just wants to watch like Every movie imaginable and pontificate about it. He I, wants to be on Cinematary all the time. He does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Lawrence Lawrence would be messaging us, going, "Can I be on the podcast every week?" <laughs> there's this there's this incredible scene where like the, it's set um it's set in the 90s and um they he goes to see uh Punch Drunk Love and it's just oh like and like it's just the most <laughs> like. <laughs> film bro punch truck glove situation that you've ever run into it's just it's insane um but he 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 and matt kind of have this falling out and so lawrence gets this job at a uh, video store and that's where the movie kind of takes off it's him interacting with the the people at the video store as well as um he kind of forms this this friendship with the uh, the female manager there um but I like this movie a lot. It's one, it's incredibly funny. It, There's, it's
1: maybe the funniest movie I saw at the festival.
0: Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. There's, my favorite line is when Matt goes, you know, Lawrence, you've never tried to, or you've never tried the masturbate. And Lawrence goes, I tried once. I just, I just didn't like it. I'd rather watch Goodfellas. <laughs> <laughs> Like it's like it's genuinely like the like it's just funny all the way all the way around, but also um, we were talking about it like deals with some like pretty heavy topics, but in a yeah, way yeah surprisingly that, like emotionally hefty movie. But like but handles them in a way that's not uh, patronizing or anything. Like it handles it really complexly. and, I think uh, makes it a really rich coming of age movie.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um, and there are things about Cinephilia that really ring true. Um, and there, and th- like things about how obnoxious people who are like deep into cinephilia can be, um, and like, man, I just—it's th- also like unique in that it is set in this unique time. I forget like what what exact. E- year this might be but it's like the blockbuster era when blockbuster is a big deal so much of this movie takes place in blockbuster
0: when did punch truck love come out when did
1: punch (laughs) truck love 2003 i think 2002. 2002. 2002 so i
0: guess early 2000s
1: and like when i was getting into movies with jesse like so much of that experience was mediated through blockbuster just like finding movies that they had by big directors that they had like what did you have exposure to right um, but it is also a really searing indictment of like how bro and gatekeepy um, movie culture can be. Um, and just like how alienating it can be to people who are not in it, right? Like when somebody asks me if I've seen a movie, I'm like, oh no, I, but I, I like that director. Like I don't think that's a thing that computes to a lot of people. Right. This is not how most people engage with movies. And so like there's something very like true and interesting about the way it's depicting like the insider outsider status of cinephilia. Um,
0: yeah, like like Lawrence is like weirded out that the manager and, and a lot of the people at the video store are not like obsessed with movies. Also, he, they
1: want him to sell DVDs of Shrek and he like <laughs> yeah. cannot lower himself to tell people that they should watch Shrek or buy this DVD of Shrek because they might like it. There's a moment where like he has to, he like his job is to walk around the store and like help people, right? And in that context, your job is to help people find a movie that they would enjoy watching. And there's just this basic couple looking through comedies and he asks them to watch Todd Salon's Happiness. Um, <laughs> I think mean, he's like, and like, he genuinely doesn't get why his summary does not like spell an awesome evening uh, to them. He's like, <laughs> it's like a quirky comedy. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. No. Um. I I hope I like movies gets a gets a, a decent distribution and like people here are like are like able to watch it because I think one it's very much, um. It's very much in like that coming of age mold of like of similar movies like like the kind in terms of how it's structured, Smart or Lady Bird. Or it's in the it's kind of like those movies, but I think this one, does, like we said, it deals with this kind of emotional heft that I think makes it much more mature than a lot of those movies, and it doesn't like steer away from you know there's a lot of times in the movie where you just fucking hate Lawrence because he's an asshole. Like he's a fucking asshole a lot of the time. And like characters say that to him, you know, like, and, and so like, it's a movie that's, it also is not like trying to prop up its main character to be like, Oh, he's kind of weird, but like, he means well. When I saw the synopsis of it, it was like
1: teenage boy working at blockbuster or it's like the Canadian equivalent of blockbuster. Um, like connects with the older boss at his blockbuster i was thinking it was going to be some sort of like yeah teenage boy losing his virginity kind of movie but like it is so not that it is not like the super bad kind of thing like it it really interrogates this character in a way that i was not expecting
0: so i like movies um hopefully it'll get some it'll expand a little um but yeah i think this would be a good if a24 got it or if um you know, a Netflix or Hulu picked it up. Like if, if it ends up popping up somewhere, I would recommend checking it out. Um, we got some time, Andrew. I'll let you talk about blowing up a pipeline.
1: (laughs) I saw somebody tweet. How do I review this movie without getting put on an FBI watch list? And I think that that is a good, that is an accurate, um, description of what it feels like to walk out of this movie. This was the best movie that I saw at the festival. Um, or my favorite movie I saw at the festival. Um, it is by um, Daniel Goldhaber, um, who made the horror movie Cam uh, several years ago, um, which I thought was a really underrated um, horror movie when it came out. It's really one of only a handful uh, from the last like five or six years that I would say have really stuck with me. Um, but this movie is more ambitious than that and, and maybe even more successful than that. It is about exactly what it sounds like. It is about a group of disaffected college students who are like um, very lefty, like very outspokenly communist, and want to. Well, some of them are outspokenly communist, some of them are just like liberally progressive enough to like want to do something about climate change. Um, But they are realizing that. Um, most of the things that they have at their disposal to like fight climate, cha- climate change, most of the organizations and, and protests and things that are happening are not only ineffectual but are like unlikely to actually affect change in the future either. Like it just feels like they're spinning their wheels um, because of like how deep in, how deeply entrenched we already are in the effects of climate change um, compared to like the, the rate of deacceleration. Deceler- um, and so they decide to blow up a pipeline uh, they like create a network of people um, who like all have a unique set of skills to bring to the table it's kind of like a seven samurai kind of movie like we need the bomb guy uh, we need the uh, uh, the electric the electrical guy um, we need the person who knows the land well. We need the person who can like drive the car. Like hell yeah, Ocean's Eleven, of yeah, pipeline blowing it up. That. It is it is that like high octane of a thriller about like finding the biggest pipeline in Texas that like sets all the gas prices for the rest of the world and blowing it up and like sending the entire um, the entire oil industry into freefall. Right um and this movie feels like i said this on twitter in my review like if you can you remember you know the trope of like a a time bomb counting down from 10 and then like a character having to defuse a time bomb and they always get it at like one second left right so that trope is no longer exciting or or pulse pounding at all because you know how that trope's going to end this movie is like the feeling that that maybe used to have when it was new, but the whole movie it stretches that feeling out for ninety nine full minutes. Um, I cannot. I would. I would have to list out every like insane situation and like the ways in which information is kind of withheld and revealed to you uh, as in the way that this movie is structured to kind of explain how it like sustains that high of a level of tension, but it does like. If you can remember the way you may have walked out of Uncut Gems, it is like that, but maybe more. (laughs) So, like, I would actually caution some people against it because, like, it's going to be, like, maybe too intense of a time. Um, Like, Jessie did not like Uncut Gems because she was like, that movie made me feel so much anxiety so intensely for such a long time. This movie is that. But, like, about you know, uh, radical leftist political praxis that, you know, has very uh, deep implications for the world that we live in. Um, and I, I loved it. It is extremely well shot, extremely well edited. Um, the cast is great. Um, Daniel Goldhaber, he's got the juice. I want to see more movies from him.
0: And this one does not have the problem with the other two we just talked about and it was it was picked up by Neon at the festival.
1: Oh yeah. So this movie's gonna play really well, I think. Though it might be controversial when it comes out, I don't know. Because of how politically radical it is.
0: I've ne- c- controversial at the movies. Never heard of it. It'll probably be tame in comparison to Don't Worry, Darling" and Blonde, so I think it'll be fine.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, it'll be controversial in a different way. Yeah, it won't have, like, weird culture war drama around it, but it is a movie that is unequivocally, un-
0: unashamedly pro-blowing-up-a-pipeline. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> you, I, you know, in a way, so is There Will Be Blood, so... <laughs> All right. Um, any, any before we we head into part two. Any, any thoughts on on Tiff this year? Reed, this was your first one, but um, I don't know. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was a good. Fa- it was nice to like be all back in place and doing things normally.
2: Yeah, it was super fun. I uh, really enjoyed it. I wish I could have stayed longer and seen more, but maybe next time.
1: It was uh, the best TIFF festival I've been to. Um, But that was partially because I had a press pass and and could see the movies I wanted to see much more conveniently. You know, I feel for you, Reed, because just having the public pass you're you're kind of restricted to what is playing at the times that you're free. Um, And the press has so many more options. Um, But um, it was also just a great crop of movies. Um, I wonder if like this is the year that a lot of stuff got pushed back because of You know, how long um, COVID kind of like slowed
0: the movies down. All right, we're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna be back in our big suits talking Stop Making Sense after this.
2: Hi, I got a tape I wanna play.
1: Up to the facts, I'm tense and nervous, can't relax, can't sleep, fed from fire. Don't touch me, I'm a real life.
0: Psycho girl. Yeah, we're back with- of episode 422 of Cinematary. In this part, uh, we're going to be talking about 1984 Stop Making Sense as part of our concert movie series. We've uh, ditched Reed because he vehemently hates the Talking Heads. And
1: yeah, it's his least favorite concert he, film. He has terrible taste. I said we're about to talk about Stop Making
0: Sense, and he projectile vomited onto the screen. <laughs> it was crazy.
1: We're doing the opposite of Stop Making Sense. We're losing a person every so often in the episode. I will be cut halfway through part two, and it will just be that. It'll just be me like, oh, I mean,
0: the music. The music. Uh, This is directed by Jonathan Demi, and it was conceived by Demi and the Talking Heads. Uh, Stop Making Sense was filmed during three live concerts, December 14th through 16th, 1983, at the Pantages uh, Theater in Hollywood. A December 21st, 1983 LA Times article reported that the band performed for four nights, but information in production notes indicates that the first performance on December 13th was a practice run for the film shoot. Uh, they also noted that the project's working title was Electric Guitar. <laughs> um, director Jonathan Demme and Director of Photography Jordan Cronenweth uh, employed six stationary cameras plus a handheld and a glide for close-ups on stage. Production notes state that Stop Making Sense was the first film to use, quote, direct-to-film digital recording technology. Um, I think it's... Goes direct to movie, direct to film. It goes
1: direct to the movie. Direct to film. Digital <laughs> recording technology. They, they, the camera takes in the images and then it spits out a movie. Um,
0: <laughs> Demi, Demi has stated that one night of shooting was dedicated almost entirely to wide shots from a distance to minimize the intrusion of cameras on stage. Demi had considered additional shooting on a sound stage made to recreate the theater but the band declined to do this as they thought the lack of audience response would have hindered the energy of their performance. Before the shooting of the movie, David Byrne implored the band to wear neutral colored clothing so the stage lights would not illuminate anything too distinctive. However, drummer Chris France can still be seen wearing a turquoise colored polo shirt.
1: Didn't he insist on wearing the blue shirt? I
0: feel like he did. Uh, demi also considered including more shots of the audience reacting to the performance as is traditional in concert films however he discovered that filming the audience required additional lighting which inhibited the audience's energy this in turn made the band feel insecure and thus led to quote the worst talking heads performance in the history of the band's career the only direct audience shots in the the film occur at the very end during cross-eyed and painless Uh, Demi, on making the film in an interview with Time in 2014, quote, "...I adore film and I adore music. I often find myself feeling that filming music is somehow the purest form of filmmaking. This crazed collision of sound and images, the intense collaboration, these incredibly cinematic performances, and for the nights you're filming, a non-player like me gets to feel somehow part of the band." Uh, In the same interview, David Burns said on the movie, quote, I think the film and the show showed that a pop concert could be a kind of theater, not in the pretentious sense, but in the sense that it could be visually and even sort of dramatically sophisticated, and yet you could still dance to it. In 1984, the New York Times said from the opening frames of Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense, it's apparent that this is a rock concert that looks and sounds like no other. The sound is extraordinarily clear thanks to the pioneering use of of 24-track digital recording. And the film's visual style is a coolly iconoclastic as Talking Heads itself. Mr. Demme has captured both the look and the spirit of this live performance with a daring and precision that match the group's own. In 1984, Roger Ebert said, There are a lot of reasons to see concert films, but the only ones that usually get mentioned are the music and the cinematography. This time, the actual physical impact of the film is just as exhilarating. Watching the talking heads in concert is a little, is a little like rock and roll crossed with Jane Fonda's workout. Which is, what a, what a description there, Raj. That's what a life during wartime is. Yeah. It's an exercise routine. Um... But yeah, stop making sense. We have both seen this, and I think our, um, you know, the train left the station, and we're like on top of it, waving flags. Yeah. So I mean, that's, that's <laughs> the kind of it's the kind of conversation you're about to get.
1: Have I told you about the my greatest experience seeing Stop Making Sense? I've seen it several times. Maybe, but let's do um, th- for the same. But the be- the best time that I saw it was at Big Ears, um, friend of the show Darren Hughes had put together this whole film program around Jonathan Demme and Jonathan Demme was supposedly going to come to the festival that year. And I believe that he did not come to the festival that year because he was getting sick and he later died like the next year, I think. Um, But they did a double feature in the Tennessee theater of first Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee kids and then Stop Making Sense a in fantastic time such a great time um, in such an awesome theater um, but yeah I've seen this movie several times I watched it um, in college when I was just kind of getting into the talking heads uh, which I feel like is a rite of passage experience for a lot of yeah, white dudes of a of a certain age slash demographic. Are you
0: into art? And are you in college? Yeah. And are you are a you white a dude? white
1: man, liberal arts major um, who likes weird music? Sometimes you should get into the Talking Heads. Um, but like for real though, because it's it's just so good. Um, this is, I think, pretty much the consensus pick among most people is like the best concert movie, and I think that that is. Correct. I think that it is almost inarguable that this is not the best concert movie. I think that the one we're doing next week does give it a run for its money, but I still think this has not been topped, um, like on so many levels, as like a a piece of theater, as a piece of music, as a piece of cinema. Um, it is kind of firing on all of those levels, um, and it is also like the the music is incredible. This is Talking Heads kind of at their peak after they've they've got several like art edgy art rock records behind them, and like now they're like hitting this big commercial success by like embracing um, funk and disco and pop uh, sound uh, sounds and like making this really pleasurable, accessible, fun sound. Um, And Jonathan Demi just shoots the shit out of it. And, like, every shot feels like it has a particular image that it's focusing on, a particular, like, shape that it's making. Um, Every song feels like it has some sort of new visual idea to it. Um, Whether that be, like, um, what a day that was, like, lighting the band from below or... um, Uh, um, once in a lifetime being this one unbroken shot on David Byrne for ninety percent of it. Um, I could just list like what is the visual gimmick of every single song, but they all got one, and they're all like new and fun and interesting and dynamic. I forgot
0: which song it was, but the one uh, that I noticed this time was. They have the uh, the the front light on the band, and like you have the silhouettes of them playing in the different little kind of almost boxes in the back, like on the back of the wall, and it, oh, remind, yeah. and it reminds you a little yeah. bit of like Jailhouse Rock.
1: A little bit, yeah. I forget what what title that is too, but yeah, there's so many great um, just little visual designs that they create with the the camera and the stage in this movie.
0: Well, it's such a it's such a. Um, such a fascinating experience, also because I mean, we were joking about it off mic. But like, um, you know, the the movie starts with just J- David Byrne and a guitar, um, singing "Psycho Killer," and then they they gradually add different band members and different instruments and things like that to to the point where I think it's like it's like the last hour is everybody's finally there. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then it's a party. And then it like just goes. Everybody's
1: there. It's such a party. Yeah, it goes
0: nuts. Like, <laughs> like it's still well, it's still incredibly well directed for like the lead up to it. But then when everybody's there and they like pull down like a back sheet and everything, it goes crazy. The lighting is crazy. The performance is crazy. Like it's just it becomes just this this experience for the next uh, sixty minutes. Mm-hmm.
1: And like. I think that doing that, that structure, um, makes for a very interesting sonic experience, too. It's, It's kind of inviting the audience, or forcing the audience, really, to notice what each individual band member is adding to the sound. It is kind of a celebration of what makes bands unique, specifically in the world of music, as opposed to, like you know solo performers or like orchestras or something where like everybody is um performing this thing exactly as it is written where a band has like this collaborative push and pull to it where like everybody's energy is like bringing everybody else's energy up um and like everybody's kind of adding to this like sonic stew that we're creating um like, because you notice, like, oh, that's what the bass is bringing to Talking Heads. I'm going to notice that in every song going forward. That's what the drums are adding to Talking Heads. I'm going to notice that in every song moving forward. Um, and then it just, like, all comes together for, for such a long time. You get to en- enjoy, um, like, the, the, the fusion, <laughs> the musical fusion that Talking Heads create.
2: Um,
1: and David Byrne is just, like an incredible stage presence. Oh, my God. Um.
0: (laughs) I mean, just at one point, he just starts sprinting around the stage.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He's, like, aggressively uncool to the point that it is cool, right? Like, David Byrne and all these guys came up in, like, the punk scene at CBGB. And, like, this is a very different kind of music than punk, but it kind of has a sort of, like, who gives a fuck punk ethos where like David Byrne is willing to do fucking anything on stage like as long as it makes him happy and seems like it's a good idea um, like he's just gonna do it like conventions be damned there's almost nothing about the way the band performs that you know um, looks or feels like a typical concert dog.
0: Yeah, I mean the the iconic image is him when he comes out in the big suit, um, which is just great because he's just sitting there in his little big suit, just dancing around with it on. Um, but I mean, you even have like the. The sequence where he's like waving around, he's like doing, uh, oh my god, you know, and he's yeah. just in, like, in, and, and Demi does it like in a uh, medium shot and just kind of lets you, so you see just like his full body just kind of worming around. Um, but yeah, it all it, it, it just has the, the way that they film but also it, it captures like everybody's personalities, like there's just such this personality to it that I think also. You know, kind of transitioning into comparing it to the other two movies that we've talked about in the series. Like this one um, is definitely, we talked about, I talked about it a little bit last week, is is like breaking from that mold of like this is kind of what a concert film is supposed to be like. But I think this one's interesting because it's much more invested into in, in like designing a performance for a movie rather than the, the previous two, um, which are kind of going the performance is happening and the movie needs to come to it. You know?
1: The movie is finding a way to capture the performance interestingly, as opposed to those things being kind of it seems like they were written in tandem. Like I feel like these camera angles were probably planned when the band was deciding how they were going to position themselves on stage and stuff like that
0: yeah there's it's so intricately designed by you know david byrne and jonathan demi that i mean you lose a little bit of like that spontaneity that you get in monterey pop or that you get in jazz on a summer's uh day but um you make up for it with just like I don't know i like i like the very like manicured experience of like like those like david byrne and jonathan demi are going like i want you to experience it in this specific way um and i mean that though that almost makes it
1: sound like rigid and unfun or something but like there's so much enthusiasm just like pouring out of the screen because like there are all these moments where you can tell the band is just having such a good time doing what they're doing like there's a scene. There's a moment in burning down the house where, like, I think David Byrne kind of like breaks character, so to speak. It's just like grinning from ear to ear. Like he's just enjoying the act of making music with these people so much that is infectious. Yeah,
0: and I th- and I think honestly, it's, um, I the the you know it, it isn't rigid because. Um, you you like how it's going all right so this is the music this is kind of the how the music moves how like let's let's design the cameras to work in tandem with that um it's it's just you know i mean that's we're gonna get the same thing very much so next week where beyonce whether it's lemonade whether it's homecoming what have you she's very much designing the look to go with the music itself and so,
1: yeah, she's a visual artist, just like David Byrne is.
0: And so, it, like, there is something about that, and I, and I think this one is very. This, this movie's that's what makes it such a turning point when it comes to concert films, because the it didn't, I don't think the, you know, the musician didn't have an active role. You know, Louis Armstrong's just performing, or Jimi Hendrix is just performing. Um, the the camera is just kind of there secondary, and it's and it's it's really this kind of shows how much of an experience it can be if you have the, the camera and, and artists like working in tandem. Um,
1: yeah, it feels almost like a statement about that, like that this is what a concert film can be as opposed to trying to be a standard concert film, right? Like um, there's a special feature on the DVD. Um, I don't know where this originally was intended to live, but like it's a interview between david byrne and himself he's like doing the split screen thing interviewing himself as like with the upper interview persona and he asks himself when the talking heads are going to tour again and he said we'll tour again when we have something new to say to an audience and i feel like this movie is like saying something to an audience by by doing a concert in such a different kind of manner and, and doing a concert film in such a different kind of manner I think David Byrne tried to do that again with American utopia and it is a new kind of way of doing a concert, but I don't think it hits the highs that this does.
0: No, I'm sure it has a, a a much more, um, better effect on like Broadway than it, it just does. Again, it's just something that's not designed for a movie. um, No, it's interesting, you know, going through the notes, seeing that, you know, Jonathan Demi initially wanted to include an audience. And that's something that's that's very important to the the two movies we've talked about so far in the series is like including that kind of audience to go along with the performers. Um, But this one very much goes that, you know, the audience is like the audience is more the viewer watching the the film rather than yeah you know and and so what's so incredible about it is that they are playing to an audience because there are people there but because you're never really engaging with those people in the crowd it's very much just um it, it very much feels like like it's a concert in your house to a degree
1: yeah if you are watching this at home, it does feel like David or David Byrne and the Talking Heads are putting on a concert specifically for you and that you get like the best angle of everything you want to see right at that concert. You're not standing behind somebody's head. Um, like you get to be up there with them. It feels like it's almost inviting you to participate a little bit. There's a moment where um, David Byrne in, I think, uh, Take Me to the River. They're doing like a call and response thing. And he hands the microphone in, fr- he puts the microphone in front of the lighting guy who's like walking around, like lighting the band. And then he turns and, and puts the microphone in the face of the camera. So like asking us to like be part of the call and response, which seems like a, a literalization of the the kind of like relationship Um, That is kind of built between the band and the audience in the movie. And, like, by the time the movie does show you the audience at the end in Crossout and Painless, it's, like, inviting you to feel like you are part of this, like, communal experience with, like, lots of people enjoying this music all over the world, right? Um, It's really beautiful. Um, And I've heard that at theatrical screenings of this, a lot of times the audience gets up and dances for a lot of it.
0: I would believe um, it. And
1: I've never... I've only seen it in a theater once and people did not do that, but I would love to do that. Like when I've the last couple times I've watched this, I watched it in my house and I kind of can't watch this movie sitting down. I'm just kind of like walking around my, my house, walking around the living room, doing whatever I want to do. But, so I can just kind of like move my body along with the music. There's something about talking heads music that kind of like pulls that out of me um, despite the fact that I'm not really a guy who dances in like my personal life a whole lot, right? Like I'm kind of a David Bernie sort of like gangly, socially awkward dude um, in, in that regard. But yeah, like there's something about the the this music and like the kind of like who gives a fuck energy that the band exudes in this that like, I kind of can't deny.
0: I can't like keep myself from wanting to be a part of. Um, The movie is also kind of interesting because I think it's not just a, um, important movie for like music concert films, but also for, um, you know, you look at like comedy specials now and, and comedy specials, I think also definitely are trying to, um, expand out i mean i think uh like bo burnham's insides kind of a different thing i was
1: gonna bring up inside i feel like it it is kind of doing a similar thing to stop making sense with the the comedy special form not that it's
0: like to this level but but i mean with with the with like a comedy special if you're watching just like a kind of a basic basic comedy special um there is like this this rhythm to it. And and you can tell some, some are better than others. There is this kind of rhythm to it with how, how the camera cuts. Um, You know, you'll have some, some, some comedians who like kind of want to play around with um, camera placement and things like that. But for the most part, it's kind of very, you know, it's meant to be
1: invisible. You're not supposed to notice what the camera's doing.
0: No, but you get kind of like medium shot close up side shot, audience reaction, you know, like, it, it usually kind of goes through, yeah, but, but I think that that's also kind of coming from I, I think that the comedy special and how that shot is coming out of this series that we're talking about, out of the kind of concert movies of just kind of trying to capture, really trying to capture, like, a live event. Um, but I would agree that, like, Bo Burnham's trying to do something very different because he's somebody who's also shot comedy specials like regular comedy specials
1: i haven't seen his like standard comedy specials like he did the um what's the carmichael guy i forget that guy's uh, name gerard Car- uh, oh
0: yeah gerard Car- carmichael i want to say he did one of mike berbiglia's he did um kate berlin uh Berlatt, Lance, her, like, like he's he's done anything
1: interesting with like the visual language of it in the way that inside or stop making sense does. Not really.
0: I mean, that's why I say like, he knows, he clearly knows how to do like a basic comedy special.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the way in which they're similar, even though they are totally different mediums, right. Is that a lot of times in inside the, where the camera is, is part of the joke or like how the, how the, uh, the shot is being lit or something as part of the joke um, whereas I think in this and Stop Making Sense like where the camera is and, and what we're deciding to look at and what we're deciding to black out is part of the musical experience right like in Once in a Lifetime when you get this like 90% of it is just an unbroken static shot on David Byrne as he's like preaching to a church basically like he's embodying that like um, like really high energy uh, like Baptist preacher persona and then like it's at the end of the, the song when like it the bottom kind of lets uh, the con- bottom kind of um, comes out of the like the sonic palette of it and like there's lots and lots of instrumentation that gets added um, then like the camera goes wide and you see like all these people like resurrecting behind him right like it if we could see those people Just hanging out, you know, intermittently during the first part of that song, it would not have the effect that it does. Um, the like seeing the way that it's the information is kind of like doled out to you as a viewer of a movie,
0: yeah. And it and I, it just has, I don't know, I mean, it kind of just goes back to like it's, it's, but it's trying to do something. Cinematically, it's it's trying to kind of communicate in that way, and that's not. I don't think that there's like a good or bad way necessarily. Like there, like there, like there is good aspects of like Jazz on a Summer's Day or Monterey Pop, where like the spontaneity and like the ability to like capture that moment in the moment, and like you would you wouldn't be able to restage it or anything, Um, is fascinating. Like there is just kind of that basic documentary element of it, because this one you know, like those two felt like documentaries. This doesn't feel like a documentary like this one. This one is very, you know, this, they're very much like putting on, putting on a show here. Um, and so I think that it's kind of fascinating that we have like the two that are very traditional concert film compared to two that are very um, um, much more storyboarded out. Um, because I think that those are, it's, it's it's kind of fascinating to think about where, outside of Beyonce where the concert um, movie has kind of gone because there was this string (laughs) of ones when you had like Katy Perry had one and Justin Bieber had one and you kind of like had this string of concert movies that were I felt like less about like trying to do something interesting and more about going this is a big star who people like we should film it.
1: (laughs) There was also these big prestige movies like wasn't there a rolling stones one by martin scorsese and like there was the U two like 360 degree experience thing um and i feel like for the most part like those things are few and far between and even those things like i don't know how interested i actually am in watching them i feel like um, maybe i shouldn't pass just having not watched them but um I feel like most concert films either are kind of disposable, or or like I feel like they're going to be kind of disposable just because of like where the genre is at. Um, so I I really wish that there were filmmakers on Jonathan Demi's level who were making concert films of, like of contemporary artists um, in the way that um you know this came together in the 80s
0: yeah it's kind of a bummer you know the justin bieber one i know was directed by john m chu who you would think would be somebody at least with his background that could do something kind of interesting but i've never watched it it could be kind of interesting but it's justin bieber so
1: (laughs) it's justin bieber in um like the teeny bopper era too so it's
0: not it's just kind of a very you know
1: um like I enjoy the two most recent Taylor Swift music video or er, concert films that came out the uh, the reputation one and the like studio sessions for folklore but neither of them like they're they're fun if you just like that music and, and want to see it done live but like didn't go to the concert you know this is it's whole experience. I also was
0: gonna ask like are those concert movies or are they more like kind of extended music video like live performances reputation as a concert
1: movie um like one show from beginning to end i'm pretty sure um but the folklore thing is definitely like almost this pr package of like this is the cottagecore aesthetic of this of this album cycle that we are selling um that was on disney plus though right it wasn't disney plus yeah so which like they kind of don't ever put out anything that doesn't feel like it's just an extended commercial for itself um but, I mean, again, I like that stuff because I like that music and I like her as an artist. But I, I don't think artists as big as Talking Heads and and uh, filmmakers as thoughtful as Jonathan Demi are, like, pairing up to make big movies like this right now. And that is a bummer.
0: Yeah, it was an interesting choice for David Byrne to partner with Spike Lee for American Utopia. Because um, Spike Lee, outside of, like, what you people know about spike lee he also is kind of is a very fascinating he does this, he does work whether it's commercials or documentary film or music videos like he does have like a he's always working he, well and he has a fascinating resume that would lean, that would um endear itself to a concert film i just don't think that like the 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 show and him were necessarily compatible like i would like to see him maybe go more like be more of the engineer of the product and do something else.
1: Yeah, there's like a moment in American Utopia where it becomes a Spike Lee movie, and then it goes back to being Spike Lee giving David Byrne the movie that David Byrne wants to make. You know, and it doesn't feel like there's that fusion between art, the two artists, the two different mediums
0: that there is here. Yeah, because Spike Lee is such a fascinating. Whenever he's done music videos and whatever, he, whenever he's done commercials. Um, It does just have that that Spike Lee personality that I'm like, yeah, like like a concert film with somebody that like Spike Lee could like genuinely collaborate with would be would be fascinating. I'm trying to and I
1: wish there was a it's such a bummer to me that um, the Daft Punk tour alive 2007 did not get a concert film for it because that concert album is I would say like the stop making sense of concert albums to me. Um, And it's like this legendary thing that, you know, happened one time. They they never tour and there's just like not pro shot footage of it. Um, That would have been a perfect, like, you know, a a movie that could be on the level of this one if they shot it right.
0: Um, Yeah. And it's it's I have to agree that this is probably this is probably the best concert movie just because I think I think the 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 spontaneity and like the the just kind of feeling put into a place with um, the first two movies that we talked about that are more documentary feel is, is special in, in kind of being dropped into that just kind of airdropped into there and like experiencing that for a few hours and then being pulled back out is is fascinating. But like like with Stop Making Sense, not only is it just kind of this very storyboarded, manicured experience that it's doing stuff to garner your attention. But like we've talked about it also, like you feel like you're legitimately at a concert. And I feel like that's kind of, at the end of the day, that's what the concert movie is supposed to kind of do is you're supposed to feel like you're, you're like you're at a concert, you know, that's grace. And I talked about that last week with Monterey pop, where there was a couple scenes, but overall, you, you know, you're, you, you don't really feel like you have a front row seat or just sitting there experiencing, you know, um, uh, uh, Janis Joplin playing or something like that, and here. Yeah, a lot of
1: time I feel like I'm just on YouTube watching somebody's, you know, somewhat pro shot footage of a concert.
0: Yeah, and this one, and this one, you know, you feel very much. I mean, like, I, like while I was watching it yesterday, like. I'm kind of the same way uh, you know i'm almost gonna like get up and start dancing or engaging with it because you don't feel like you're watching it's not really like a sit down and like let's sit down and, and, and study yeah, this movie Yeah, like
1: my body is instinctually kind of moving and like my feet are tapping and stuff while i'm sitting down anyway and then like sitting feels like an impediment to like the experience i want to have with this movie yeah
0: it, it it feels like the wrong it feels like the wrong way to go about yeah. it yeah it's a little strange <laughs> that for the big years thing everybody just sat there and watched it like nerds.
1: <laughs> There's a um, Talking Heads cover band in Tennessee. I don't I think they might be from Murfreesboro or something. Uh, maybe they're from Knoxville, I don't know. Um, called Same as it Ever Was. It would be cool if somebody sent them this podcast to listen to it. I don't know. Um But they are, like, the best cover band I have ever heard. They sound almost identical to the Talking Heads, but they, more importantly to, like, matching the sound perfectly, they match the energy of it. And, like, again, I'm not a person who dances a lot at concerts, but, like, I dance at same-as-it-ever-was concerts because, like, that you can't help but do that. Um, And, like, this, again, this movie is just, like, the perfect encapsulation of that feeling, I think.
0: Yeah. No, it's, uh, we're never going to get to go to a uh, talking, head con- talking Heads concert, but uh, you have Stop Making Sense, which I think we'll is... We'll always have Stop Making Sense. Exactly. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I believe that'll wrap up uh, wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Letterboxd at Letterboxd, or... Uh, Twitter and Instagram at at Cinematary and on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash Cinematary where you can uh, see all the movies that we talked about in this episode keep up with some of the the TIFF offerings that we had in part one Um, if you'd like to support the show head over to patreon.com slash Cinematary whether it's a dollar five dollars Whatever you'd like to give, we appreciate it if you'd like to support the show. Thank you uh, to our patrons, Cam, Chad Newsom, Corey Willingham, Candice Sisson, Ron Hayes, Teresa Marthathi, Titus Arthur, and Tyler Chandler. Thank you so much for your patronage next week. We mentioned it before, but we're going to wrap this thing up with Beyonce's Homecoming. Which
1: also just rules. It's so
0: good. <laughs> Super good movie. Yeah. Um so yeah that uh, from 2019 i wish i wish quite honestly she could uh maybe maybe, i'm sure she's planning something with the new album um it could make a
1: great concert film if she did it it.
0: yeah yeah i'm like i'm hoping for a good concert film out of it because like the the lion king one was just yikes it's it's,
2: (laughs) again it
0: came out on disney plus is all we gotta say um so um it should be a good one but until then thank you all for listening